Now, if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 19? We're continuing in our series called A Vision for Your Family. And last week we were talking about how if you don't have a vision for something, it's going to fail. And so the same is true with your marriage. Uh, marriage, for those of you that don't know, is an incredibly difficult, hard thing. And if you do not have a vision for your marriage, a good godly vision for your marriage, you will struggle mightily throughout the entire course of it. Uh, in fact, the stats are now about half of all marriages end in divorce. And even for the marriages that go the distance and make it, a lot of those are pretty far from a walk in paradise. Marriage is incredibly difficult. I didn't know that until I got married. Uh, I am far from a perfect husband, but I have an incredibly loving and gracious wife and an incredibly good God who's been able to strengthen us and help us through my stupidity. But the reason that marriage is so hard is because you start out as a child. And you have all these insecurities, you have fears, you have character flaws that you're just born with and things that you acquire from hurts growing up. And then you work, you try to mature. That's what being an adult is, is I'm working through these fears and these insecurities and I'm trying to move into adulthood. Or at least I'm trying to hide some of these things from other people. And then you meet Mr. and Mrs. Perfect and you fall in love and you're like, my passion for you is like the fire of a thousand burning suns. You are the sunset. You are the breath that's inside of my lungs. And this person could do no wrong. And so what do you do? You get married, right? And then as soon as you get married, what happens? Every single insecurity, character flaw, and fear that you had when you were a little kid, it all comes back up to the surface, and now it's directed towards this person that you thought was just the most incredible person in the entire world. And the problem with marriage is not just that one person is doing that. If it was just one, it would be hard enough. But when you have both people have hurts and character flaws and insecurities and other issues that they're bringing to the marriage, it gets crazy. It is incredibly, incredibly difficult. And so that's what we're always trying to face with is we're trying to figure out how is it that we take these two very separate lives from broken, messed up, hurt people and cram them together into one life that we now share. And this is something that's not new. This has been the reality of marriage since marriage started. Adam and Eve, after the fall, they went from perfect marriage to like, you didn't take the trash out, did you? <laughs> uh, do I always have to do that? Is that my job now? You can't ever take the trash out? You know, it turned into stuff like that. There's all these little petty things that come up. And these things individually, it's like, what's the big deal? You didn't take the trash out? This shouldn't end in divorce. But these things, they just build up and they build up and we act like little kids and it leads to disastrous results. Now, that's the way we all are. You guys are laughing at me, but you all do it too. I remember it wasn't that long ago, I was on a date uh, with Anna. It was last summer. We were trying to you know, go out on a date night because we have two kids. and We went out to South Haven where we got engaged and we went on a lot of dates there. Uh, way back in the day before we got married. So it's like reliving the best uh, of our like, pre-marriage life. Like We're trying to recapture that. And we go there, we're watching the sunset, we have this nice dinner, and when we're going out to the pier to watch the sunset, it's starting to cool off a little bit. So I tell Anna, hey, you should bring a coat with you. And she's like, no, it's really warm out, I don't need a coat. And I'm like, I really think you should bring a coat. I'm bringing my coat because it's going to get cold. She's like, no, it's hot, I don't need a coat. So we go down to the pier, and we sit there, we dangle our feet off the end, we're watching the sunset, it's just the two of us, it's really romantic, beautiful, everything that you would hope you could have when you have two small children. Like we're just away, we had dinner, our kids are alive, things are going great. <laughs> and, 
And we're sitting there, and it starts to get a little bit colder. I've got my coat on at this point. It's not zipped up, but I have my coat over me. And she's sitting there, and she starts getting a little bit closer to me. And I'm like, I know what's going on here. <laughs> and then she's trying to put her arm around me. And I'm like, okay, oh, that's so nice, dear. That's so sweet. How romantic. And then she's putting my arm around her and, like, the coat around her, too. And I'm like, mm, I'm like trying to keep my arm down. I'm like, oh, you're not getting this coat. There is no way you are getting this coat because I told you to bring a coat. I told you to bring a coat. You didn't listen to me, and now you're going to have to learn a lesson. You know, like, I am going to teach you that you had to bring a coat when it could get cold. But she won't ask me for the coat. If she would have asked me for the coat, I would have given it to her, but she just wants me to figure it out, and I had to communicate it. So here we are, the two of us were fighting like little kids. She's trying to pull the coat off of my body and wrap herself around in it. And I'm trying to keep my arm down and like keep scooching away from her. And finally she says, she's like, do I really have to say it? And I'm like, say what? She's like, do I really have to ask you for the coat? And I'm like, well, if you brought the coat in the first place, this wouldn't have happened. And so our beautiful romantic date turned into, if my one and three-year-old were acting like this, I'd be like, I failed as a parent. Go to your rooms. No dinner, no dessert, nothing. Just get out of here. Kids, grow up. But we were acting like that. And the date ended up getting better after that. We had the whole discussion. Why can't you just ever say what you want? Why can't you ever just do something nice for me? You know? But we worked through it. But the problem is, this kind of stuff can build up, and it seems petty. It seems so stupid, and really it is petty and stupid. But these are realities of living as broken and flawed people. And what happens is, this is something that's always been going on, and during the time of Jesus, marriage is a difficult thing too. And there are two different kind of competing political parties within uh, the Judaism at the time of Jesus. And they both have their own rules of what it takes for you to be able to get divorced. Because the common solution, just like it is now, was if you're having all these marital issues, they, they, they pile up and they snowball, and eventually gets to the point where it's easier to just walk away, start over, just get done with it. And they had their list and criteria of what was acceptable reasons to get divorced. And some of these were crazy. There was one party that was basically, hey, any reason at all, you can divorce your wife. Like, it does not matter. Uh, there was actually one of the reasons that's really funny is if your wife burned your food, you could divorce her. Because it wasn't just that she was watching the kids and trying to clean the house and take care of a million other things at once that were vying for attention. It was that this was a deliberate attack against you as a husband that they were trying to show you their displeasure with you and they were being rebellious against you. They were purposely burning your food to bring a culinary uh, disaster to your palate. I mean, I'm dead serious. This is one of the reasons, and in some places in the world, this is still a valid reason to get divorced. And then there was another group that had not quite as silly of a reasons, but there are a lot of ways that you could get divorced. So they come to Jesus and they're asking him, what are the sort of things that we can get divorced over? And in Matthew 19, 3 through 6, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So both these parties are coming to Jesus and they want Jesus to be on their side. Because if Jesus agrees with you, then that pretty much settles it, right? 
But what happens is, they discover is that when you come to Jesus looking for an easy or a convenient way to get out of your marriage, Jesus isn't on your side. This is something that is not a part of God's vision for your marriage. The reason that God allowed divorce and he made provisions for it in the Old Testament law, Jesus says, is because your hearts were hard. That, that there was sin that was in you and that sin was affecting every part of who you are and therefore it's affecting every relationship that you have. It's contaminating, it's destroying, it's polluting every part of you and every relationship and you're unable to do anything about it. Your hearts are hard, there's nothing that you can do to soften your heart, there's nothing that you can do to change your nature. But the good news is that Jesus changes everything. What you were unable to do, what the, the hardness in your heart, the character flaws that you had, the insecurities, the fears, all of these things that you brought into your marriage, all of the things that bring destruction inside of your marriage, Jesus has the ability to change. See, you're no longer a slave to sin. When you're a Christian, it's not just that you're someone who has a forgiveness of your sins. It says that you used to be a slave to sin. You had to sin. There was nothing that you could do. But now Jesus has freed you not just from the penalty of sin, but he's freed you from the bondage and the slavery to sin. You aren't someone who has to live in sin anymore. You have the power because of God's strengthening in your life to resist temptation and overcome sin. And that means that in your marriage now, even though you might still have temptations and there might be sinful tendencies and there might even be areas where you just flat out do sin, God has the ability to overcome that. He has the ability to change your heart. See, what God came to do wasn't to give you reasons why you can get out of the marriage. He came to change your heart to save the marriage. And that's the beginning point of our vision for what our marriage is. When we come, we look at what God says. <clears throat> when Jesus casts vision for marriage, he says that God's vision for marriage is, first of all, one flesh. You guys are all, you know, think about like, I have my soulmate, we're one uh, it's something that actually is this week because you, some of you know I have a surgery coming up where I'll be out for about a month and I was thinking, you know what? I'm going to have a month off where I don't have to be in front of people. I've always wanted to shave my head. Uh, this has been something my parents wouldn't let me do it when I was a little kid and then I never did it when I was in college for some reason. I was busy doing other stupid things but I've always really wanted to shave my head and I've never had the opportunity to do it. So I'm going to have a month off. If it looks terrible, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to see me. I'm going to shave my head. And so I tell Anna, I'm like, I'm in the bathroom and I'm talking to her. She's in the bed. And I'm like, hey, Anna, you know what? She's like, what? I'm like, well, this month off I'm going to have, I'm going to shave my head. I've always wanted to do that. And I'm excited about it and I expect her to be excited about it as well. She was not excited about it. She's like, what? why? Why would you do that? I was like, well, ever since I was a kid, this has always been something I wanted to do. I don't even think it's going to look good, but I just really want to do it. I want to see what it looks like. And she's like, oh, but I love your hair. I'm like, well, yeah, I, I understand, but it'll grow back, most of it. And she's like, so then she tries another tactic, started out like buttering me up, well, you have such nice hair, why would you want to do that? And then it moved into, well, you know, I don't know if it's going to look real good. And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter who's going to see me, I'm already married, I got nobody to impress. And she's like, and so then it moves into like, she's kind of trying to be a little bit more firm now. She's like, you know, Jeremy, uh, you have kind of a big head. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I know that. She's like, and you're really, really white. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, it's going to look horrible. 
Now, at this point, I don't feel as good. Cause just, I mean, I know I have a big head, and I know I'm as pale as a person can possibly be. But I don't need to like, be reminded of that all the time. I'm well aware of that. So now I go from like, just excited about having my head shaved to like, what's she talking about? How could she? This is a dream, and she's crushing it. Now she's insulting my head and my pigmentation or lack thereof. And I'm getting mad, and I'm like, you know what? It's my body. I'm going to do what I want. And she goes, it's my body too, and I say no. Okay, well, I got in bed, and that's that. (laughs) Because there's ingrained in us this idea of that when you get married, you cease to be you. You are no longer, it's no longer Jeremy and Anna, it's Jana or something like that. But our two lives have combined. I am no longer my own person. We have become one flesh. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, I have a new life now that I share with my wife. Neither one of us exists as an individual anymore. It used to be different. I used to have an individual life. I thought it was pretty awesome. Turns out it wasn't that awesome. But Jesus said that if you want to be one flesh, these are the things that have to occur. And the first is he says that they shall leave. And what that word means is that, that to literally cast aside, to leave behind. That there's this old life as an individual that you were living where you had relationships and things that you would do that you now have to cast aside or leave behind in order to become one flesh with your spouse. Now for me, before we got married, it'd be about two nights a week that Anna and I would go out on dates and then the other five nights, I'd hang out with my friends and roommates and we'd play Halo till two or three in the morning. Now, that was a fun life for me at the time. But it turns out that's not conducive to one flesh after marriage. So there were some things that I had to leave behind. I couldn't just be hanging out with my buddies till two or three every night and expect us to have intimate uh, connection spiritually, emotionally, live as one flesh. There were relationships with people that I'd leave behind. There were things I used to do that I had to leave behind because you can't exist as the same person with the same life that you used to live and expect these two lives to come together. You have to leave some things behind. And then the second thing he says is that you have to hold fast. And that word means to cling to something, to stick together, to resist separation. When you come together, uh, we have this idea of like, a, a tr- how attraction works. It's just like a magnet. You know, If you get the poles lined up just right, it's like, bloop, and you come together. And you, you try to pull it apart, and it takes some effort to do it, right? But that's not what really God's talking about. He talks about us being one flesh. Is he talks about there's this element of where we do have to cling on to each other. It's not that something can pull us apart, but like we're holding on. It's like there's a tornado coming and you're holding on to each other for dear life because if that tornado hits you and separates you, you're gone. That was a terrible analogy. <laughs> so I'm just going to move on. When we started dating, it was like, you know, if you get too clingy too fast, that's bad, right? You don't want to look desperate. It's like, man, this person has some serious emotional needs if they're getting clingy too fast. But there comes a point to where you have to become clingy. You can't exist as one flesh if you aren't desperately holding on to each other, fighting for each other, resisting separation. But then there's another part of this that takes place, and this goes beyond what we can do of our own human effort. And this is where he says that what God has joined together. We can cast things off, We can leave things behind. We can cling to each other. But to truly become one flesh, we have to recognize that it's God who joins us together. And what the word used uh, in this means is it actually means to like cement something together. 
It's a type of a bond that cannot be broken. It also means to pair people together, to yoke them together, like how oxen would be yoked together to be able to pull something. There's something that's bonding you two together that cannot be broken. It's like two-part epoxy. You guys ever use that stuff? I was building something once. I had the two-part epoxies, and both individually, they're nothing, but you put them together, and it gets hard like a rock, faster than you think. So I had some between my fingers, and it, it got there, and I was like, oh my goodness. And so I'm trying to pull them apart, but real carefully, but when something's been bonded like that, you can't pull it apart and have two individuals that were the way they were ever again. When I finally pulled my fingers apart, I was missing skin on both of my fingers. They were not healthy. They were not good. They had been bonded together in a way in which they could not be separated again individually. And that's what God says he does inside of our marriages, is that he bonds us together. God himself does that in a way in which we cannot be separated. And when separation does occur, it leads to brokenness. The two, when you separate, when you two come together and become one, you can't separate them into two again and have them be healthy. It's tearing, it's breaking. There's a bond there that's broken that was never meant to be broken. Now, the way that God's created marriage for us to live as one flesh, that sounds incredibly romantic, right? Like, that's an awesome ideal. Yeah, that's what we want. I want to have that kind of relationship with my spouse that's so strong, so bonded that nothing can separate us where we've left everything else behind and we're clinging desperately to each other. But the problem is that even though that's the ideal that God lays out for us, it's incredibly hard for us to match up to that ideal because even though we're a people who have been freed from sin, we've been forgiven of our sin, there's still that old sinful nature that keeps creeping up and makes you want to keep your code or not communicate what it is that you need. And we always have to come against that. And really, we see what happens in Genesis chapter 3, 16. When sin comes into the world, we see that this is how it affects human relationships, and especially the marriage. Genesis 3, 16 says, Your desire, and this is God speaking to Eve, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this is not a commandment. This isn't God saying this is the new order of things. What this is saying is that this is the effect of sin on your marriage that you were created as two co-equals that came together and together you bore my image, you represented me to the world that was around you, two equals united as one. But what happened when sin came into the world was that now it separated you two and instead of living as equals inside of your marriage, you're going to continue to vie with each other and to fight to have supremacy and domination over the other. Now some people have misinterpreted this verse and they say that your desire shall be for your husband. And they say, well, what's happening is now women, all they want to do is just please their husbands and make them happy. Their desires for what's best for their husband, but their husbands are just going to be oafish brutes who lord over them. Now that's half true. Your husbands are oafish brutes. We all are. But what it says that your desire shall be for your husband, there's one other time in the Bible where this word desire is used. And what it is is actually just a couple chapters over in Genesis where it talks about uh, how Cain's offering has been rejected and he's really angry. And God comes to him and warns him and says, be careful because sin's desire is for you. And what that word desire means is that it's trying to consume you. It's trying to overtake you. It's trying to dominate you. So when it says that your desire shall be for your husband, it really means that your desire is going to be, rule, to, be to rule over your husband, to dominate him, to subordinate him. So now marriage goes from two co-equals ruling and reigning together inside of a marriage, representing the image of Christ to the world that's around us, to two sinful, flawed people 
who instead of mutually submitting themselves to each other, are trying to fight with each other, each one trying to get the leg up in the relationship. And that's why marriage is so hard. It's because this is the way that the human heart is naturally. When sin entered the world, it completely wreaked havoc on the most beautiful relationship that ever was created, the marriage relationship. And this battle continues on in us today. If you're married, you have seen this. You have suffered the effects of this inside of your marriage. And you've even been consciously aware of it at times. Like, I'm doing something where I might know that I'm wrong, but I want to be right and I want my way, so I'm just going to continue to do this. I remember the first time that I did that. And afterwards thinking, what kind of a monster am I? But that was what was inside of the human heart. It's inside of all of our hearts. And that's why we have to be so careful. And Paul then says, this is how we address this. Since we don't live in a world where you don't still suffer temptation from sin and have brokenness inside of you, in order for us to live the way that God's called us to, these are the things that we're going to have to do now. And he writes this to the church in Ephesus. And they're a church, they're having a great struggle going on within the marriages. Um, You know, every church has their issues and different seasons where different issues are going on. And in Ephesus, the Christians there are struggling mightily with their marriage relationships. And what's happening is there's two things going on. Men and women are fighting against each other inside of the marriage relationship. Now, the men are trying to dominate the women. It's the typical male chauvinism stuff going on. Uh, You know, they're oppressing women. Women had no rights. They had no respect. They had no love. Uh, They were sexual objects. They were trophies. They were housekeepers. Their job was to rear the children. They were treated as a second-class citizen and maybe not even as any sort of a citizen. That's something that's, you know, been going on since sin entered the world. And the women were also trying to dominate over the men. And the way that they were doing that was by buying into what was called the new Roman woman. Now, in response to being treated like dirt for generations and generations, they said, we're tired of this. We can't trust men. They're no good. They're not going to ever have our best interest at heart. So what they did was they came up with the idea that men were awful, which I can see how they came to that conclusion. And they thought that marriage was a form of slavery for a woman. It said that if you're married, that now you are a slave. Your husband is a jailer. Your children are leeches. And so the women began to leave their families seeking independence and to be free from the oppression of husbands, of family, of marriage in general. So the men are acting like jerks, treating the women very poorly. And the women now have had enough of that. And they're buying into the idea that marriage and family is a form of slavery that they need to free themselves from. And that they need to, instead of coming together as co-equals, they need to rule over men in the same way that men have been trying to rule over women since the beginning of time. So that makes for some pretty messed up marriages, as you can imagine. And Paul writes to them, and he begins in Ephesians 5.21, and he says to them, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is how he starts it out. And he goes through and he addresses uh, all kinds of different relationships after this. But the way that he starts, he says, The Christian ethic, the way that we live, is that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the foundational principle for marriage. In a world where we have the desire inside of our hearts to dominate uh, over our spouse, to not live as co-equals, or as Peter said, we're equal heirs in new creation, husbands and wives are, so we need to treat our wives with honor and respect, but that's not the default condition of the heart. So he says, because of the sinful condition that you have, if you want your marriage to line up with God's vision for it, where you can live as one flesh, the first thing that you do is you have to submit yourself to one another. And it's after this now, after this he says, this is the principle, this is the foundation. 
And now everything after this is going to be, he's going to address the men and the women specifically. But um, this is the way, a lot of times when people look at the passage we're about to look at, and it's talking about women submitting and men loving, they say, okay, woman's job is only to submit, men don't have to submit, and a man's job is only to love, and the wife doesn't have to love. Well, clearly that's not true. We're all called to submit to each other, every single person. I'm called to submit even to my children. It says in the Bible that you know, it's better for us to submit to other people, even if we're in the right, than it is to stand up for ourselves and cause disunity to exist between us and them. The Bible talks about submission an awful lot, and it's really hard for us to accept because that's not the natural desire of our hearts. Uh, when Anna and I were having our struggle on the pier on our date night, did I need to be gracious towards her? Yes. That was my problem, was I was not being gracious towards her. I was not being merciful towards my wife. Now, does that mean that I'm the only person in a relationship that has to be gracious and merciful? No, she has to as well. But that wasn't the problem she was dealing with at the time. Uh, she needed to be able to communicate what was going on and to humble herself and communicate that. Now, does that mean that I don't ever have to humble myself and communicate? No, but that was the issue that she was having at that time that needed to be addressed. And so now Paul, as he talks to men and women, he's not saying this is the only thing that men have to do and this is the only thing that women have to do because we're all called to love and to submit each other. But this was the issue that each of them was individually dealing with at the time that needed to be addressed to bring unity back into the relationship. And so in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it, that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the first thing there in that is he's saying that number two, if we want to have the vision for our marriage that God does, is there has to be humble submission. Paul is telling the wives there, like, look, your husband might be a jerk. That is a very common reality for you. He might have done horrible, terrible things, not respected you, not given you the love and the attention that you deserve, might not have treated you like he should have you, but you know what? The call of Christ on us is to submit ourselves to each other. And the woman would probably read that and say, how on earth could you call us to submit ourselves to our husbands who don't even give us legal rights to vote or to own land? God, you know that's not right. And God's saying, well, yeah, that's not right, but I'm still calling you to submit. And that's a hard call on us. But that's not the hardest call of submission that we find in the Bible. You see, at that time, the Romans are ruling, they're occupying Jerusalem and all of Israel. And these are people that have been killing their families for generations, they've been dominating over them, they rule with an iron fist. And Jesus says to them, hey, you know what, if one of these Roman soldiers comes to you and asks you to carry his gear for a mile, I want you to carry it two miles. 
I want you to submit yourself to these horrible Roman oppressors. And you know what's amazing is that these soldiers that they're carrying stuff for are the ones who are oppressing them, are enslaving them. And when he says that you carry it for a mile, the way that the law was set up was a Roman soldier had the right to ask any person to carry their gear for them for one mile. And the way that you knew that you had traveled a mile with them was they used crosses with crucified Jews on your roadways as mile markers. These are horrible people. But Jesus says, when they come and they use their right on you to have you carry their gear for a mile, I'm not saying that it's, it's a good thing. I'm not saying that legally that should be. I'm not saying that lines up with my will. What I'm telling you is that you submit and you go above and beyond. You do what's ridiculous. And he says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, what do you do? You hit them back, right? I mean, that's what's fair. But he says, if someone hits you on the cheek, you turn the other cheek to them as well. He says to love your enemies. He says to pray for those who persecute you. Because you know what we do when we submit ourselves in that way? When those women who were oppressed submitted themselves to their husbands was they modeled and they demonstrated the love of Jesus to them. You see, the number one goal in our life isn't to press and take full advantage of every right and every opportunity that we have. It's not to stand up for ourselves. The number one goal of our life is to model and to demonstrate the love of God to all of those who are around us. And Jesus did this. He was the king. He was the ruler of heaven, the creator of all things. And he submitted himself. He gave up his divine rights, his privileges, and he came down and submitted himself to us whose creation, who horribly mistreated him, even killed him on the cross. But he loved us so much that he would submit himself to us in that way. And that's the way that we have to submit to each other inside of marriage. Not submitting when the other person is right, not submitting when the other person's treating us well, but saying, I am crucified in Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And because of that, I'm willing to put myself in the place where I'm just going to submit myself and my wills and my desires to my spouses. And then it goes on to say that uh, for husbands, you have to have a sacrificial love for your wife. Now, the women are like, well, that's easy. They get off easy. It's easy to love us. I mean, look at us. We're awesome. But these husbands, even though they've been oafs, they're not feel, they've lost that loving feeling because now their wives have gone off and they've said that I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want to be a part of your family. I want to rule over you. I'm going to leave my children. Uh, it's like everything that the women are doing is just crushing the men and making them feel completely devalued. And when someone's treating you like that, how much do you want to love that person? You don't want to. They might have said, we have a right not to love our wives. They've left us. They've abandoned us and everything else. But Paul says, what God's plan for you is for you to sacrificially love your wife no matter what it is that they've done to you. Because that's the way that God loves us. You know, a lot of times we like to think of ourselves as being something. When it comes to the way that God loves us, one of my favorite examples of God's love for us comes from the prophet Hosea, one of the minor prophets. But he was the one that God said, and I'm sure a lot of people have tried to use this excuse before, but God told them, I want you to go and I want you to marry this prostitute. She was actually a prostitute. And he's like, okay. And so he goes and he marries a prostitute. And the woman continues to live as a prostitute 
does not honor him, does not keep the marriage bed sacred. She's out there continuing to live this life of unfaithfulness, even though Hosea continues to be faithful to her. She runs away, comes back. Hosea takes her back. He's like, God, can't I divorce her? Look what she's done. And God's like, no, you stay with her. You love her. And so then she goes out, and she becomes pregnant with other men's children and comes back. And he's like, do I seriously have to raise these kids? And God's like, those are your children. I want you to call children who are not your own, your own. And so he goes through all of this. And then God says, you know, this is the way that I love you guys. I'm Hosea, and you guys are this woman of the night who's continually unfaithful to me. You hurt me, you cheat on me, you abuse me, but I still take you back. I still love you. I'm still pursuing you again and again and again. There's nothing you can do that will keep me from loving you. And that's the way that God loves us. And that's the way that we have been called to love each other. And that's a hard commandment. A sacrificial love. But it's possible. And here's how. Is that while we may not have had the ability to change our hearts on our own, while you might feel that I cannot submit myself to my spouse because of the things that they've done, or I cannot sacrificially love my spouse because of the things that they have done, the memory of it continues to well up inside of me. They've become my enemy now. There's nothing that can be done to save this marriage. God has the ability to save your marriage because he has the ability to change your heart. You see, when Jesus rose from the grave, and he defeated the power of sin and death. It wasn't just that he made a way for us to be able to go to heaven someday and now we just live on earth waiting to get to heaven. It says that we received new life inside of us when we put our faith in Jesus. When we made Jesus the Lord of our life, it says that he enters into us and that he takes up residence inside of our hearts and he begins to change us. He begins to make us like him. And so you might not have had the ability to forgive because of the horrible things that have happened, but now God is in you. God is strengthening you. He's changing your heart. He's giving you new life so that now through his strength in you, you have the ability to forgive. He's changing you so that even though someone has lived in a way that does not deserve respect anymore, you can still respect them. You can still submit yourself to them. You know, I have seen God do amazing things in marriages. People who are divorced that he's brought back together. People who are on the brink of divorce that he's changed their hearts. And it's not because of something that they did as an individual. It's because of something that God did in them. And it took them getting to the place of brokenness and saying, God, my marriage is not where it should be. I am not where I should be. I need you to enter into this equation. I need you to come and to soften my heart. I need you to come and soften my spouse's heart. I need you to come and put prophetic vision inside of us for what the marriage could be, who we were called to be together, the way that you've called us to raise our family and to serve you and to follow after you. God, we want to live as one flesh like you said. And it's only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart. But the good news is, is that's available for every single person. God can do something new in you today. He can do something new in your marriage. It can be better than you ever dreamed. It can be better than you ever hoped. It could be better than ever could have been possible on your own. All because Jesus went to the cross, paid the price for our sins, removed our guilt and shame, and brought new life into us. Would you guys stand with me this morning as we pray?
one of the Proverbs that says, never be in the hurry to leave the presence of a king. Because when you're in the presence of the king, there's someone that has power and authority to bring change into your life. And I think that applies to us this morning. We are in the presence of the king of kings. And we don't want to leave empty-handed. We don't want to leave without the king having enacted his power in our lives to change us. And so this morning, every eye is closed as we pray and we're just having an honest and real moment before God, I encourage you, ask him to, to search your heart, to make an honest assessment of, of where you are and an honest assessment of your marriage if you are married. If God's speaking to you this morning, I'd encourage you to respond to him if he's putting new vision inside of your heart for what could be in your marriage or what could be in your life as a follower of Jesus. It's something that he's speaking to you because it's something that he wants to do. He doesn't put false hope inside of us. The hope that we have in Jesus never disappoints. So I encourage you this morning, if, if you want God to come and to do something new inside of your heart, you want God to come and do something new inside of your marriage, would you be bold enough to raise your hand? Is this a symbol of God? Say, God, I need you. I want you to come. I want you to change me. I want you to change the reality that I've been living in. I want to follow you. I want my marriage to line up with your will and your vision for my marriage. Thank you. Thank you. Now let's just humble ourselves for a moment before the Lord and let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. And Father, thank you that you haven't left us alone, that we don't just come here and sing songs and listen to some people talk, but that when we come here, we meet with you, and that you are here, you're present to change our hearts, to change our lives, God, to change our marriages. And so we pray now for every person here, Lord, that you would put your vision for them inside of them. God, that you would give them a glimpse of the holy possible, and that it would be such a compelling vision, Lord, that they'd be willing to surrender everything to you and leave everything else behind to follow it. Jesus, I pray for every person to raise their hand, Lord, that you would give them your vision. God, we pray that they would truly be one flesh inside of their marriage, co-equals reigning and ruling together. God, we pray that there would be a mutual submission. God, that they would be able to humble themselves before each other, not look after their own interests, but look after the interest of each other. And Father, we pray that there would be a sacrificial love, a love that keeps no records of wrong, a love that doesn't hold on to guilt or to shame, but a love that freely receives and freely gives. God, you said that you are a mighty man of war and that you rise up to fight for our marriages. Jesus, we pray that the way that we love each other would be the example of the way that you love us and that through the marriages of the people of Radiant Church, Lord, that people would see the forgiveness, the love, the grace, and the mercy that you have for us. God, we pray that through the example we set in our marriages that many would enter into your kingdom. Jesus, we pray that you would put a hedge of protection around us and around our families. God, that you would strengthen us, that you would humble us, God, that you would fill us with your love. That in everything we do, we would model and demonstrate the love that we found in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.